You are listening to Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, a weekly radio program that spotlights positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization throughout Philadelphia. I'm your host, Derek Hengemill. Jumpstart Philly is a unique community development program that trains, mentors, networks, and provides funding to aspiring real estate developers in seven different Philadelphia neighborhoods, including Germantown, where the program was founded. Jumpstart believes that you can do well by doing good and focuses on removing neighborhood blight, scattered site rehab, creating a healthy mix of affordable and market rate housing, and avoiding gentrification through slow, steady growth and keeping wealth local. Interviews are conducted during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jumpinar series on Monday nights at 7 p.m. held via Zoom webinar. For more information about these events, check out the events page at jumpstartgermantown.com. This week, I'm having a discussion with CPA Jack McGovern about tax issues that you will encounter when developing and selling commercial real estate. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and be sure to check out the podcast version of this program at jumpstartgermantown.com media. Like I said, I'm going to introduce Jack, and he is, or Jack McGovern is a certified public accountant who has been the president of CPA Philly since 1992, and that's his firm that specializes in tax compliance, financial reporting, financial planning, business valuations, and several other management service, management advisory services. Um, him and his staff of 12, piece, 12 people represent many closely held businesses, individuals, and not-for-profit concerns. The firm also prepares payroll returns and provides bookkeeping services for businesses. Um, and yeah, that, that's all I got to say. Welcome, Jack. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for the great intro. No problem. Um, so we're talking tax issues tonight, right? And and you're you're the right person to talk to about taxes, uh, considering you're a CPA. Um, I, I don't know if I covered everything in my bio. I'll just kind of let you say hi to everybody and, and let them know who we're talking to. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, my firm is located in the Maniunk section of Philadelphia on Main Street, and uh, we're recovering actually from Hurricane Ida. So we got past that. That happened uh, just to, you know, right around Labor Day. And uh, I practice what I preach. I started my own business uh, when I just got out of college. And then from there, I probably bought my first rental property very close to when uh, I finished college. So I know about the rental property from both being an accountant, representing many people who did it, to owning rental properties and being involved in limited partnerships and so forth. So I'm happy to answer any questions that I can so that others can enjoy in this uh, you know, great industry. Great. And yeah, I'll, uh, I'll remind everybody that to, to ask questions to Jack, um, you can do so by using the Q&A function, which is on the toolbar at the bottom of your Zoom screen there. Um, just type them in, you know, as we're talking and, and we'll we'll get to all the questions from attendees uh, towards the end, right around 745. Um, but I understand, Jack, you have a, a sort of outline or, or agenda for the discussion that we're going to be following. Um, I sent it out to everybody earlier this afternoon. Um, if you didn't receive it, I just put it in the chat there where you can download it. So it might be helpful to have that up as, as we move through it here. Um, but it's, it, I think we're, we're starting with some, some simple definitions and sort of you know setting, setting the course of, as to what we're talking about. Um, Jack, let's start with what, what is commercial real estate? What, what do we mean when we're talking about that? When people talk about commercial real estate, I can mainly consider it not to be a property that you don't live in yourself. Residential means that it's your own residence. However, in the commercial real estate field, many people define their commercial properties as residential, which means you have residence as tenants. 
and they typically are made up of duplexes, triplexes, quads, and then uh, you know large apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when people talk about commercial properties, they generally talk about like retail properties, and uh, it could be office buildings and things like that. And when people use the term mixed use, it would be kind of like what my office is on Main Street. You know, it's uh, retail on the bottom, and then we have apartments on the top. So that's considered mixed use. And then when you hear the term credit tenants, that's typically to describe uh, big corporations that you have as tenants. Things like CVS, 7-Eleven, Walgreens, uh, those type items we call commercial tenants. And then the other term that we use in real estate often are flips. And that's when you buy a property, fix it up and flip it. You know, we call that a flip. So they're really the different types of real estate that we have that are commercial. Right. So even though, you know, like like a duplex would be zoned residential, um, but you still consider that commercial because you're, you're doing it as part of your business kind of, right? Yes, you're, exactly. Precisely. Right. So that, that it might be something for people to think about when, when they hear that term commercial real estate, not necessarily talking zoning. It's more so, you know, that the activity, right? Who, the, the purpose, I guess. Yes. Cool. Um, yeah, you can move, move right on. Then uh, pretty much the different goals of real estate. The number one goal really is to build wealth. Whatever you're doing, you should always think about, you know, how am I moving forward from this project? I always tell people they should run their own household like it's a business. And you should be looking at projects, not only for the tax benefits, but for how will this help you? You know, ultimately, you want to have it where it's passive income and you're getting commercial uh, credit tenants down the road when you finish your real estate uh, uh, career, maybe you have 7-Eleven or CVS sending you rent checks, and that would be the ultimate goal down the road. People like that because those big corporations are on the hook to pay, and they have to pay you whether something goes wrong with their venture or not for the most part. So you want to build wealth. You want to create passive income. And when you're starting in real estate, it's a really good way to offset other income. Oftentimes, people come in and it's a uh, two-family two household. I shouldn't say two-family, two-person household. Maybe you have children and one person can do real estate and reduce the income of the other person. Uh, so it's a good way to use to get, um, you know, reduce your taxes and generate more money going into projects. And in real estate, we also talk about it's really not taxes, is the use of leverage. What that means is borrowing money. So what people like about real estate is that, you know, for $10,000, if you put down 10%, you're controlling an asset that's worth $100,000. If that $100,000 doubles in value, your 10000 really went up by $100,000. So that's what people use when they have the term use of leverage and arbitrage. So that's pretty, and arbitrage is more like, you know, you're getting interest rates like for when you rent, you typically tend to get anywhere from five to 10% interest, and you may borrow it anywhere between four and 8% interest. And that delta over time will generate arbitrage and different income and greater than the bank's rates of income. So it's always good to look at the goals of real estate. And many people have come in, and me included, is that you really should look at the fundamentals of a real estate deal and the taxes to me, or the gravy that makes you 
make even more money on it. But you really shouldn't do a tax deal for the uh, reasons of, or the real estate deal for the reasons of taxes. In fact, there's been laws put in. When I first started in accounting, I'll show you my age, there were rules against the number of write-offs that you could have. In other words, they wouldn't let you get too large a write-off. So people, years ago, it was somewhat of an abusive system where people would get many more times the money they invested. And over the years, the tax code has been reformed to kind of stop that. But with that said, there's still a lot of good tax benefits for being in you know the real estate business. Yeah. And those, those goals of real estate, the, those ones you just walked through, I mean, those are applicable to no matter what type of development you're doing, right? No matter whether it's a, an office building or, or yes. a, a single family, you know, two bedroom house. Um, it, it's the same format. It's just the scale that changes. Um, right. And, uh, and that, that kind of leads to, to our next topic here, which is the tax issues that come with. Um, you, you started to, to touch on it a little bit, but um, I'm assuming, you know, once you, you do larger scale projects and you're working with, you know, more complex types of development and, and tenant keeping and, and whatnot, um, there, there's tax issues that can come up. Um, what, what are some of those that, that people should be aware of? Really, everything big and small, it happens in the first year that you buy a property. So you should really want to look at when you buy a property, what can we do in the first year to maximize things? And you guys were nice enough to invite me to another seminar down the road where we talk about depreciation. But, you know, just using an example, you know, an average property may cost $250,000. Well, if you buy that $250,000, we're late in the year right now. We're in November. Sometimes people call me up and they go, gee, I have a really high tax year this year. What can I do to reduce my taxes? Well, essentially buying the property in at the end of the year can help you, but it may not help you because of the different depreciation rules that we get into. Um, the other thing I want to talk about before I talk about the first thing is, is when you're setting up a property, you should always think about the exit strategy of what the taxation will be when you get out of the property. So when we evaluate the taxation on a property, we look at the first year, we look at how you're going to get out of here, and then we look at people's different personal tax situation, depending on some people, this is their full-time job. Many people, you know, even like in the Maniunk area that are working people, you might have the wife could be, for instance, a nurse downtown and the husband might work at home and he does, you know, uh, house flipping or whatever. And there's different rules for that. And then we have what we call real estate professionals. And then there's various real estate elections that everybody pretty much needs to be aware of when they do their taxes. So um, I don't know if I'm moving too fast or that, but I'd first like to talk a little bit about depreciation and what that means. So when you buy an asset, a, a property, let's use the example $250,000, you can't deduct the $250,000 purchase in one year. You have to what we call depreciate that property. The other thing is that you're not allowed to depreciate land. So a property has to be split between land and building. As far as you're concerned, we wanna have the maximize each taxpayer's situation within reason. But what you wanna do is you wanna allocate as little as you can to land. The different ways that people really look at coming up with the land value is the in the city of Philadelphia, they have a really good website and they have like the BRT and they tell you the land allocations and we generally use that. They're pretty favorable to the 
uh, taxpayer. Then what you want to do is in depreciation of a larger scale, they have something called a cost segregation study. And what a cost segregation study means is that you componentize your buildings. So a residential property gets to be deducted of 127, 27 years, a commercial property 39 years. So that's not a lot of time. I mean, it's not a lot of depreciation in one year. You essentially take, say, if it's $250,000 and 50,000 land, you take $200,000 and you divide it by 27, and that would be your depreciation. However, the way to make that maximize, if you think about it, a property is made up of different components. And some of those components can be a heating system, a driveway, uh, you know, windows, window treatments, and so forth. On big commercial scale project, projects, they hire people called cost segregation experts, and they componentize their assets, and they depreciate uh, some of those assets more rapidly. And the tax code allows some properties to be deducted in one year, you know, types of property. So you want to try to componentize your property if you can do that. And what a lot of the uh, smaller investors do is they try to follow what the big guys do. So just because the big guys are doing that doesn't mean you can't. So you can do your own um, cost segregation study and break out, for instance, uh, upgrades and things like that and depreciate that over a five or seven year period of time. The other thing that happened in depreciation this year and it's happened since the pandemic. And before that, there's been a couple crashes in the economy. They allow you to deduct some uh, bonus depreciation, which means in one year. So what can happen is at the end of the year, if you do a study of your own property that you're buying, then you could take a really nice tax deduction by the end of the year. Okay. Just having an agreement of sale, you literally need to close on the property. So you have to purchase the property before the end of the year, you know, to get a tax deduction in place. So that's kind of like the, the ground rules of depreciation. I mentioned um, you have to think about when you sell a property. And I'd like to just jump right to a sale and then we'll talk about what happens in between. When you sell a property, your gain is determined by whatever you sell the property for less selling costs, such as commissions and things like that. And then what happens is you get to deduct not what the loan value is on the property, but what you paid for the property plus improvements, less depreciation. Mm-hmm. I said a lot there, and I don't mean to go too fast, but it's called what we call the adjusted basis of the property. And it's a fundamental. So it's really the delta between what you receive for the property less what you paid for it. And uh, if you have a property for a while, so let's say you hold the property for 10 years, you may have depreciated that property. So oftentimes people are surprised by the gain that I tell them they're gonna have when they have a property because they've claimed depreciation on that property. So when you think about it, like one of the major things about uh, real estate is really good is when I gave you my example, Let's say you were able to put 10 or 20% down. You may have put 10 or 20 or $30,000 down, but you've claimed depreciation over time of 90 or $100,000, which is really good. That's reduced your income over the years. But what the government doesn't want you to do 
is to have that benefit uh, totally. So you have to give that back when you sell the property. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say there's not true ways to get out of that even, but that's something that you have to be aware of. So if you go to sell the property, you should consult with a tax um, uh, strategist or expert on what to do when you sell the property, because you may be uh, surprised by what that gain would be. Yeah. So, so it sounds like the, the tax issues come up the most and are most frequently encountered, like you said, within that year before and after you sell the property, right? Um, it's like, yeah, I would say that's true. I would say the biggest issues are when you buy a property and then again, when you sell it and then you need to, then the recurring issues happen and they're pretty much like on autopilot. I shouldn't say autopilot, but it's pretty much the same year to year unless you're adding to your real estate portfolio. Right. Right. Um, so, and I'm not sure if you're going to get into this, um, but just something to keep in, or, or I, I want to ask you about in context, um, like, like what are the, the requirement differences between this, um, like pertinent to a commercial development, say you're, you're, re you're rehabbing a CMX property versus like a single family RSA five property. Are there a lot of um, differentiation between the tax requirements here or? No, no uh, the fundamentals are the same. You have to have uh, the property. It's whatever you paid for the property, less what you sold it for, less the depreciation. There's two distinctions, though, that you need to consider. One is that if you're a developer, and I understand there's a lot of uh, developer or aspiring developers in the audience, that if a property is deemed to be inventory, meaning you're just buying and selling houses, like I think of the typical track developer, such as, you, you know, um, I don't know, Toll Brothers, you know, a big you know, company that buys and sells properties. That would be a business and that's considered inventory. So they don't get to take advantage of a capital gain. So a capital gain means you've held the property. It's an investment for more than a year. Pretty much everybody in the audience, I presume, are looking at holding a real estate portfolio and be a capital gain. But that's not necessarily true. Like in the area of a flip, that would not be capital if you do it for under a year. Um, the other thing that you were mentioning was uh, residential. You know, we use that term. So when you have a residential property, if you live in that property, now I'm talking about your home, for two years or more and you've owned that property, if you're single, then you can exclude up to a $250,000 gain. And then if you're married, it's up to $500,000. I know the topic of the, the group is um, commercial real estate. You might ask, well, why would we do that? But many people that I see, especially younger couples, what happens is one of the persons might be a working person, and then the other person might be a real estate person. And if you literally move into that house and uh, fix it up and hold it as your own residence for two out of five years, you can avoid any gain at all. And that's a really good thing for aspiring developers to do. So you would really want to take advantage of that, you know, so that's something that you should really think about. Yeah. Cool. Uh, moving on, I, I see you have some notes here about um, like a 1031 exchange and, and opportunity zones. Well, we had a session on, on 1031 exchanges uh, not long ago, maybe a couple of weeks with John Thane. Um, and he, he explained the whole process, but I'm sure it is very much applicable to commercial real estate in that, um, you know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, uh, and 
you can never hear enough about it. And, I'm, and the, the thing with taxation is this stuff you can get really deep into the weeds on or you can hit the general overview and I'll hit the, the general overview with that. There's when you hear a like kind exchange, that means you're selling like property and it means to be investment property. You hear the term 1031, what the 1031 means, it's a like kind exchange. The 1031, whenever you see numbers with taxes, it's designating the tax code. So the tax code 1031 is the code that allows you to do the change. Sometimes you hear the term Starker. And so the Starker is a famous tax case that was tried under code section 1031. So you'll hear three names, like kind exchanges, 1031, Starker, and they all mean the same. So it's all like kind exchange. But what happens with these properties is you have to have an intermediary take, get involved. So it's not a situation where you could come in and have your taxes done and go, oh, by the way, I bought a property and I bought another one. Well, you really literally have to go to an intermediary company to help you with that transaction. So if you have a sale pending, again, you should talk to a real estate professional, either uh, somebody like myself or even a real estate agent typically could lead you to a 1031 group and they could you know, move you into a group that would help you. Um, the disadvantage to a 1031 is you generally don't get any money out of it. So what, what I mean is you have to invest your entire proceeds into the next deal, which may, many people may like, and it's a good thing to do. Uh, but that's one way to do it. You have to identify the property within 45 days and close within six months. Another thing that's become popular is the opportunity funds. And, they, and an opportunity fund is made up of uh, an area that uh, is like an up and coming area or a rust belt area. And so you might say, well, what do, I, what do I mean by that is that there's all parts in the city of Philadelphia that have opportunity zones. And part of the areas in Germantown, in fact, are in opportunity zones. You may think of, I said, rust belt. What I mean by that is throughout the country, there's all kinds of opportunity zones. So like when you think about it, you look at like old manufacturing sites, many of those like under I-95 in that corridor where there's a lot of light industrial, there's a lot of opportunity zones there. There's opportunity zones by Graduate Hospital, Temple University, you know, places like that. Um, there's places like Atlantic City that the entire city is an opportunity zone. So there's many different places that you can have there. The advantage to an opportunity zone versus a 1031 is you can put in whatever you want into that from a gain of not only real estate, but if you made money on selling Facebook or Apple stock or something like that. And then what happens is you defer that gain. The gain becomes due in the year 2026. But whatever you make on that property, you don't pay gain on that again. I know it sounds confusing and there's a lot to it. And again, there could be a seminar just on that. But you should be aware of the ability when you sell something, not so much that you memorize it now, but you know that there's options to get out of a property and, you know, minimize the tax bill. Yeah, sure. And I'm sure as you're scaling up your business and you're doing more more and more transactions and more and more, you know, settlements and getting more properties and selling more properties, like each one of these matters and, and they're they're more of like a, a sum of its parts, right? Like yes. 
you might save this portion of money on, on one of the properties, but if you multiply that by, you know, however many you own or, or have done in a year, it starts to add up, right? It's a, yes. a, it's and, a and, and an example that I give with real estate is it's funny. Like when you go to Jersey Shore, I was lucky. My parents always went to the Jersey Shore. And so it was something that I knew that I wanted to do as well. But you buy your first house, you know, four or five blocks from the beach. And what you want to do is keep moving up closer to the beach. I haven't hit that beachfront property yet, but I'm trying. And what you do is uh, you kind of do these like kind exchanges from one property into another. And that's kind of the example. If you don't do that, what happens is you end up paying tax along the way and it slows your progress down. So you want to do it in a tax efficient way. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with CPA Jack McGovern about tax issues that you will encounter when developing and selling commercial real estate. Thanks for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. And I hope you're enjoying the discussion. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I see. And next, do you have here some notes about flips? Um, so these are they're when you're not really holding the property. Yeah, the, th- the, the, the thing with flips are those rules can be uh, problematic in that a lot of times people make money in a quick way. And what happens is that's taxable. And if you're not careful, it's under a year, you have to pay the ordinary income tax rates. The one good and bad thing about Philadelphia is Sometimes in Philadelphia, things take longer than you want, like getting things zoned properly or getting approvals and that. So that if you end up taking a year, it's not necessarily a bad thing because the capital gain that you have, you want it to be, you know, long term rather than short term. And then, as I said, you want to classify. I didn't really give a lot of notes on this, but many people that are developers, they'll do like a row of they'll. uh enhance like a city block or maybe seven or eight homes. And they'll have a company that one company is the uh, building company. Another company is the investment company. And the reason they're doing that often is to avoid rules on uh, like inventory and making sure that they don't have to pay all ordinary income taxes on that, you know, or um, another thing that can happen with flips that you have to be careful of is that, if you make money on one property, sometimes you're working on the second property and you didn't really take your profit. I don't know if you can follow what I mean, like you've invested into the next property and you have to be really careful about that from a taxation standpoint, because you can come in and you've really rolled your money into the next property, but you haven't figured out what the taxes are and you owe tax money, but you don't have the money because you put it into the next property. So you really have to be careful and mindful of how you're going to uh, report these things on your taxes and how that's all going to flow. Yeah. So on that uh, same page of, of being careful and making sure that you're you know watching every step with this sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I imagine at this point in, in someone's you know career as a real estate developer, they probably have an accountant or, or someone on their team who who you know helps them with this sort of stuff, but. Um, when you're when you're dealing in, in larger scale, you know, commercial projects and, and uh, you know, larger, uh, you know, value real estate, um, you should, should you have a tax accountant specifically, you know, that is, is there? To- typically, uh, the, typically people do it. Uh, first, you may start out doing your own taxes on TurboTax or whatever, which is a really good way to get started and understand the rules. But 
ultimately along the way, you'll end up going to seminars like this or having tax professionals, you know, help you with that. So it's important to do it. And joining groups like you're in where you're talking peer to peer, that's a really good uh, way to, you know, get a handle on what you need to be aware of. Cool. Yeah, that, I think that that's good because uh, you can you can learn the basics, I guess, from doing I think using TurboTax and, and getting your hands on once you go beyond like five rental properties that you have, it, I'm sure it gets a little bit out of hand for you to be doing it. All it, do, it, it sure does. And the one good thing about TurboTax or even our own tax software is it stores what they call the basis of a property from year to year. So each year you have to depreciate that property. And once it's set up in the tax software, it kind of rolls over from year to year. Right. So these tax softwares, they kind of have some, or, or they're, they're at least familiar with real estate development and how real estate taxes work and can kind Definitely. of- Definitely, definitely, yes. Great. Um, okay, I, I see the next thing in, in our agenda here is is passive activity loss rules and limitations. So I'm assuming these are, are you know, government tax regulations against, or, or you know, for, for people who are not actively, you know, like using one of their assets, right? Is that is right? That- so the tax code is pretty peculiar. You you could have, but I should probably bring a stack with the from a stack on my paper. This is how thick the tax code is. And really, you know, with income, there's three sources of income. One is earned income. That's really wages or, or running your own business. So that's source number one. Source number two would be investment income. And what's considered investment income is like interest, dividends, and some capital gains, really. And this is where there's a little bit of crossover with real estate. And then passive income is from a business that you're not actively involved in. And unfortunately, the tax code automatically, with with several exceptions, considers real estate a passive activity. And so why that's important is you have to kind of measure when you do your taxes and the tax software does it for you, uh, segregate these different sources of income. And what you really want to do is have your real estate losses reduce your earned income and your investment income. But there's rules to that and how much you can deduct against that. So as you're, um, you know, and I used to think, gee, you know, making $100,000 was a lot of money. But actually, in this world with uh, income going up with inflation and so forth to household incomes, it you can get there pretty quick with having overtime and things like that. So you want to avoid where you have issues with how much you're able to deduct against your other income. So there's rules with that, you know, passive activity, income, real estate losses that you can take against that. So I don't know if that's clear or not, Dark. If I'm answering your question, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I mean, it's more so just uh, it's something that people need to understand about, um, like like what counts as a passive property versus an active property, or or, or what what that concept of a passive like you don't want to be accruing. A, a, a right. So so actually, there's three types of income, and then what you want to do is you want to classify your real estate as an active activity, and that allows you to offset the other income. So many people um, are active in real estate. So there's what they call a real estate exception. So if you work more than, and I have the rules outlined here, uh, but the IRS gets pretty uh, tough on it where 
you have to, if you're a real estate professional, you have to work 750 hours in real estate. It has to be more than whatever you do. And when you achieve that, then you're able to take your losses against the, the uh, passive income that you have and your earned income. So that's something that you want to do. What's kind of nice is husband and wife get to add their activities together and you can take you know, the two together. Um, the one thing I left out is, you know, we have uh, many professionals as clients. So sometimes we have uh, doctors that come in and they get involved in owning a surgery center. Well, their income from the surgery center is often as high as the income they have performing medical uh, you know, procedures. So what happens is real estate can offset that. That would be one activity, passive activity offsetting another passive activity. But for the most people, what they want to do is lower their earned income through, you know, tax deductions and being designated as a real estate professional, if that's possible. Right, right. And and I, I'm sorry if I missed you, you touched on that, but I, I, will, I do want to touch on real estate professionalism and what that means. What are the, the qualifications for that? Um, you know, what, what, um, what, what does that mean for a developer? Like, what do they need to do to obtain that? Generally you have to work more than 750 hours a year in real estate. And uh, what that precludes generally is you can't be, you know, like a full-time dentist and then say you're a full-time real estate professional. You know, you have to spend more time doing real estate than your main profession, but you have to spend at least 750 hours a year on that. Um, and so, but where it comes in handy is sometimes you have a husband and wife and then one of the, Uh, people just works on real estate. And if they work 750 hours and that real estate portfolio was negative, then what happens is they get to offset their spouse's income by going negative and perhaps paying little or no taxes. And so the advantage of being designated a real estate professional would be able to do that. If you're not a real estate professional, the tax code does allow Generally, it's $125,000. It says in my documentation $100,000, but there's phase-outs in that where you get to deduct up to $25,000 a year. So that's pretty good still. You know, if you figure you're in a 30% tax bracket, you know, you're going to save $7,000 in taxes by being in a real estate, you know, uh, investment that, that'll help you do that. And what I've always tried to do is to break even on real estate cash flow wise because um, I'm lucky I have a full-time job as a CPA and then the real estate I've always had on the side but I always wanted to kind of go negative with that and that helps you reduce your income from your main job and then you're building wealth in your real estate uh, endeavors and it's reducing your taxable income from your regular job it's a really nice way to build wealth great great Um, so before we move into these last couple topics uh, here, uh, I just want to remind everybody we're going to have a little short Q&A session at the end of our, our conversation here. So if you want to type any questions in, I see we have uh, one, one question submitted from Sherry. So thank you, Sherry. Uh, but anybody can, can type those in and, and we'll cover them in just a few minutes. Um, but yeah, Jack, so, so moving on on your agenda here, we have a, a section on common real estate tax elections. Um, I'm familiar with what a tax election is. Um, if you... You know, for, for my sake, if you could define that and then we could uh, talk about what there are. 
once again, you get into like the first one that we get is in, in tax loss can be a gotcha situation where you go in uh, and you try to do the right thing and you don't get your taxes uh, prepared the way that you had really hoped that they would. And there's some elections that you may be aware of. Number one in real estate is what's called a grouping election. Grouping means you get to group all your time for real estate into one activity. So when you get up to owning several real estate properties, it's not possible to send, spend 750 hours a year on one property because you're working on many properties. Well, you can group your activities as one property and one election. So that's an important election. That's called a grouping election. So uh, that's one election that you want to think about. Uh, another one would be to uh, take a carry back. So you may want to take a carry back election on if you have more losses than you have income in one year, you can elect to carry back or carry forward your deductions in one year. Another election, and you'll see I have these uh, numbered like a 179 election. That's kind of like the 1031. A lot of people know about that. That means you get to deduct all of your purchases of certain classes of activity all in one year. And that's an election that you have to make in one year. Another one is that you can elect to have uh, uh, a safe harbor for capital expenses. So if you spend up to like $10,000, you can consider anything under $10,000 a capital election. So these are the types of real estate elections that you want to make when you prepare your tax returns. Great. Cool. And uh, the last thing here I just do want to touch on because it's, it's something that we, we don't really talk about too much because um, people usually, their, their two options are, you know, buy and sell or buy and hold, but but not like a buy and hold uh, short-term rental where it's like, uh, you know, an Airbnb or something really, you know, something something like a rental, what you have here, a rental of less than two weeks in total. Um, what, you know, what are the, the tax? Uh, or yeah, what's so I'm glad you reminded me that's here. So in my career in the last probably five to 10 years, the thing that came up that was really big or new was the Airbnb situation. But aside from the Airbnb, short-term rentals can mean a few different things in tax laws. First is that if you have like a sure property in Atlantic City or one of the sure points, if you rent it out for less than two weeks during the year, believe it or not, you don't have to pay any taxes on it. That's considered in tax law a short-term rental. Another term where short-term rental, it's unrelated to that is when it's seven days or less, then you get into rules like that can be like, a when you think about that, it's typically a motel or a hotel, and that's really an intensive time thing. So there's a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, but a fair number of people come into our office and they run their houses as Airbnbs where they have a second rental property that they, you know, make good money doing the Airbnb. And generally, the people who have the Airbnb make more than the monthly rental people. But there's a reason they make more. And it's because it's hard work. You know, it's, you know, daily changeovers, you're providing services in that. So that if your rental is less than seven days on average, you know, so when you add up all the average the rentals during the day, during the year, you have to figure out what was the average rental. If it's seven days or less, uh, then you get to not fall under the passive loss rules and get to deduct those expenses against your ordinary income, which is really 
a good, powerful thing. The thing about the sure rentals that I keep bringing up is they generally are seven days. So it's funny how the tax code knows that, you know, so it's always six days or less. Um, But that's where that comes in. The other thing with Airbnb that you have to really be careful of is there's been an anti-Airbnb movement. Like a lot of uh, cities want you to pay hotel taxes and things like that. So the focus of tonight's discussion is really income taxes, but really you have to be aware of all things and it is a gotcha society. So we've seen when the Airbnbs first started, you know, uh, municipalities coming to people saying, you know, you're really running a hotel here and you have to pay a business tax license for that. And the hotel and occupancy tax is a tax that renters don't pay, but um, the Airbnb people do. So you have to be aware of rules like that. Okay, well, that uh, I think covers most of what, what the notes you had prepared for us. Um, I, I think that was a great overview of the tax issues for commercial real estate and, and give people an idea of you know, how they can strategically kind of align themselves in, in their tax situation to, to make the most profits they can you know, in the short term and defer them as much as they can in the long term. Um, so, so thank you, Jack. I appreciate that, that walkthrough. Um, and, and I'm sure everybody's happy to have that, that PDF ready to go whenever they need it. Um, I do have uh, some questions here from attendees. So if it's all right, we can uh, move on right to those. Is that all right? Yes. Cool. Um, our first question and our second one comes from Sherry. Um, and she says, uh, if I want to minimize the gain as a flipper, you indicated that I need to live on the property for at least two years. Can it be a second home or does it have to be my primary residence? Right. That's a very good question. And it has to be a primary residence. It can't be a second home. But where it's really interesting is many times people have a home and they uh, move out of the home, you know, and upgrade to the next home. And they make their original home be a rental property. So that's a very common thing that we see. The thing that you have to be careful when you do that is you have to live in your house for two years, two out of five years. So first, you could sell that home right away and not pay tax. But when you sell a home that you turn into a rental, you have to be careful when you sell it. You essentially have to sell it within three years. But either way, it has to be your primary home. The contents that I, context that I was talking about was that if you were flipping it, you would have to have it set up as you live there. And, you know, so basically what I described was you're working at home when you're working on the property nights and weekends. But, you know, in this real estate market, it's not unusual for us to see people make fifty, dollars $100,000 in flips. So, you know, and, and, you know, some people like watching Eagles games and some people like um, working on houses and fixing the house up and they make a uh, hobby into a business and it, it's a good way to structure, you know, a flip. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, Sherry, or not. Great. Um, and, and I just want to remind everybody, we, do, uh, you know, we just have two more questions left. So if anybody has any additional ones, I go ahead and submit them using the Q&A function at the bottom since our chat isn't open. Um, but our next question also comes from Sherry and she was just wondering how you prove hours of work. Excuse me. How do you prove hours worked as a real estate professional when you have a regular job. So uh, maybe uh, the question could also be like how, you know, what, what I, counts- I, I understand Sherry's uh, question and you have to be careful of this. 
because you have to spend more time in your professional as a real estate professional than your regular job. So if you have a nine to five job, that's essentially 2000 hours a year. And it's hard to believe somebody will work 4000 hours a year. So you have to really do it on a calendar basis. We've had tax cases where the clients had to, you know, produce what they call a contemporaneous calendar. That means you put a calendar together. A lot of people really don't do that or like doing that, but it's really a facts and circumstance thing where you have to kind of prove or be able to prove, hey, I was working, you know, as a dental hygienist, for instance, you know, uh, 15 hours a week and I did this 20 hours a week. And, you know, and generally it's pretty clear because there's a lot of bills to Home Depot or whatever when you're spending a lot of time on doing a flip. Um, if, if you're working in a full-time job, the IRS is very suspicious that you qualify, mm-hmm. you know, to do both. Right. Okay. Um, the next question comes from Brenda, and she was wondering, and let me know if you need more, uh, any clarification here, but when rehabbing a property, can I de- excuse me, when rehabbing a property, can I deduct the cost in one year from my taxes? So I think maybe she's referring to like deferring the tax on the cost of the rehab or the, or the construction cost. Well, um, let me answer the question. And if it's not enough, maybe Brenda can ask again. But when you uh, depreciate a property, some of these items you have to deduct either as repairs. And that's when I got into that election where uh, you can deduct up to $10,000 as uh, just repair deduction. Or when it gets over that, you have to capitalize them and put them into the cost of the improvement. And then what happens is you depreciate that property or that repair over time. Okay. Yeah. And I'll let Brenda clarify if she needs to, but I think that that answers it. Um, The next question comes from Keith, and he was just wondering, what are some basic 101 accounting strategies that novice developers can do themselves to help reduce their tax burden? Well, the the first thing that I always say to people is just account for what you did and, you know, have credit cards to keep track of what you did. So if you have Home Depot bills or something like that, that you're able to keep track of it and know what you did as far as uh, spending more your time. And then when you think about it, sometimes there's ancillary things that you have, like you used your cell phone where you used your computer or your internet, or uh, you can't deduct your home if it's a negative situation, but there's different expenses that you incurred, or maybe you took uh, classes or whatever. All of these things can be used to reduce your income and list it as an expense. So the, the, the first thing I do is try to quantify your spending and then try to look at it and you know, correlate it to you know, the real estate activity. No, that's great. I, I like that tip because that also makes me think about people who like, you know, are, you know, working their nine to five job or are working 40 hours a week and they don't realize how much of their real estate professionalism has leaked into their, you know, personal lives and, and you know, they're using stuff they would, would not yeah. necessarily. And people who have two things going, then what they have is you get to deduct the travel from the first business activity, which could be your job to your real estate job you get to deduct that as like an automobile expense. Right. Yeah. Do you have any like, uh, you know, resources you want to point people towards where they can learn more? Well, about? Uh, the internet's a great resource. 
our, our company, we call it cpaphilly.com. We have on our website, um, you know, tips for real estate investors and real estate tax deductions and things like that, that you can take a look at. Um, you know, we have quite a, uh, you know, uh, background of clients that are in our office from people who have rental properties all the way up to big developers, you know, and, um, I like working with any of them and we have real estate tips on our website. Great. You can look at. Awesome. I, I just put the link to the, the main like homepage in the chat. And I think is it under tax or tax tools or who we yes. serve? Oh, yeah. I'm sure you should be able to find it if you go to the uh, link there. Um, all right, great. Well, that, that does it for our Q and a tonight. And I think that's a good place to wrap things up up so i just want to thank you one last time for uh for joining us tonight i really appreciate you thank you Derek. and anybody who who's attending is welcome to reach out to me i'd be happy to answer any questions they have you can get to me through our website and i'm happy to answer any questions you have and that concludes my conversation with cpa jack mcgovern about tax issues you're going to encounter when developing and selling commercial real estate the interviews on this program are recorded during Jumpstart Germantown's weekly Jump in Our series, which takes place via Zoom webinar every Monday night at 7 p.m. And if you'd like to participate in the live Q&A with our guest, be sure to head to jumpstartgermantown.com events and register for next week's Jump in Our. And if you're interested in starting a Jumpstart program in your own community, visit gojumpstart.org and see our how-to guide and open source training workbook. Thank you so much for listening to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show on Germantown Community Radio, WRGU 92.9 FM. Be sure to tune in next week.